Welcome back to the Death and Grief Talk podcast. I'm your host, Joelle Simone Maldonado. I'm also known as the Grave Woman, and I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. It's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and I'm sitting here in my office, looking out of the window, reflecting on all of the beautiful holiday seasons I've shared with loved ones, friends, and family throughout my life, and also dreaming and daydreaming, hoping and wishing about the holiday seasons that I pray to share with my children and people that I haven't even met yet. And my thoughts can't help but wonder and think about how I would feel and process if I knew that I was making the choice for this to be my last holiday season. Not because I didn't want to enjoy more holiday seasons or experience the holidays again with friends and family, but because I was diagnosed with a terminal illness or facing a diagnosis that I knew would strip me of my ability to remember. And my heart can't help but go out to the people around the world who are grappling and trying to make sense of all of this while enjoying the holiday season. I also am thinking back to a season of my life where I worked as an, an aide and an assisted living and nursing home that specialized in Alzheimer's and dementia care. And my thoughts go back to a gentleman named Arthur who would wake up almost every morning and joyously exalt, Merry Christmas, everyone, as he handed out socks, shoes, toothpaste, toothbrushes, and other personal items from his room. I also think about Claudia, an 86-year-old woman who would wake up several times throughout the week screaming because her Alzheimer's had trapped her in the memory of her daughter or receiving the news that her daughter had passed away in a fatal car accident. I can't help but to think about what resources or what support would have been helpful to not only Arthur and Claudia throughout their diagnosis with dementia and Alzheimer's, but to their families, their support system, their healthcare team. In this installment of the Death and Grief Talk podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kim Callanan, president and CEO of Compassion and Choices, an organization that I am proud to serve on as a member of the board of directors. We discuss this and so much more as it pertains to autonomy at the end of life and exactly what it is that Compassion and Choices does. So Kim, thank you so much for taking time out of your tremendously busy schedule to talk to me today and welcome to the Death and Grief Talk podcast. Um, You're someone that I truly admire and look up to and now have the honor of working side by side within the end of life and death care space. So in your own words, could you please introduce yourself as well as let me know what brought you to this work? Absolutely. Um, and thank you, Joelle, because you're somebody that I um, look up to as well. And it has been a, a delight to have you be a part of Compassion and Choices Board. So um, just um, love all around. Um, but I came to this work um, with my own personal stories, like so many people do. I had a mother, uh, a grandmother on my um, mother's side who had Alzheimer's. Then I had a um, grandmother on my father's side who had an advanced directive that was not honored. And I had the experience of watching 
her feel as if her final wishes were violated. That just left me feeling so incomplete about how she lived the end of her life and how she died. But then ultimately I had a grandfather and my mom by that point was a hospice social worker. And he ended up having the most beautiful end of life experience where we all got to be around him. We held his hand. He gave his final, you know, words of wisdom to each of us. Um, And it was just when you juxtaposed that against either of my grandmother's experiences, it was so profound, not just for the dying person, but also for those of us who are left behind. And so I was called to this work as a result of that. And I really feel as if I have found um, what I'm meant to, to do in my life. Awesome. So for those of us who may be unaware, what compassion and choices, what medical aid and dying is and all of the resources that compassion and choices offer outside of the medical aid and dying lobbying and advocating what just give us the bare bones about what compassion and choices is and what it is that we do so compassion and choices quite simply wants to help make as many people as possible realize the kind of end of life experience that my grandfather had Um, And that is an experience that's consistent with their own values and priorities. So he actually had a beautiful hospice death that was consistent with what he wanted. He withdrew. Um, He was on heart medication at the time. He stopped his heart medication. He began to start stop eating and drinking. And he had a beautiful end with us all surrounded by him. Um, So what we do is we advocate for the full range of end of life options. That's everything from improved palliative care, which happens at the onset of a serious diagnosis before you're terminally ill, all the way down to um, authorizing medical aid and dying in all states. And medical aid and dying is when a person who is terminally ill with a prognosis of six months or less to live and mentally capable Um, decides that they want to go to their doctor to request and then is able to legally um, receive medication that allows them to um, end their suffering at their own time. And so we at Compassion and Choices advocate for the full range of options. We don't take a position about what option someone would should choose. So, you know, your option is your option. But what we want is for everyone to have access to that option. And for some people, and in some states, we're successfully advancing medical aid and dying. However, there are many people in many communities that don't even have access to hospice and palliative care, or aren't aware of those as as options. And so we work across the spectrum. We do work with our community engagement teams um, to realize more equitable access to end-of-life care. And that's through the full range of things. It's from legislation, policy change, public education, social media, and actually clinical engagement is a big piece of it because ultimately what we want to do is change policies and change the medical system and raise awareness so people are able to be empowered to have the kind of end of life experience they want. You know, Kim, and I, I think that's a beautiful explanation. And there were a couple things, honestly, that influenced my decision to join the Board of Compassion and Choices, especially after the onset of the pandemic in 2020. I really feel as if our healthcare system, I don't want to say it's collapsing, but is definitely at an essential pivot. And I feel like conversations like this being held by organizations like Compassion and Choices is truly 
elevating the standard of care here in our country and possibly around the world. And I think a big part of that is us awakening to our spiritual essence. And the thing that I love about Compassion and Choices is what you mentioned about community engagement. The organization is working to close the gap on those health disparities, as well as addressing the spiritual components with those that we advocate for. Um, What do you say to those who have conflict or what does the organization's stance on those that have conflict between this is what I want in my personal life, but this is what I believe spiritually or faith-based. Right. That's a great question. So first of all, I just want to circle back to the community engagement piece um, Mm -hmm. and just lift up um, and acknowledge the work of Brandy Alexander. She's been with the organization for 18 years now. um, And um, she leads that team and has just done a tremendous job. And they focus on all different communities. So the African-American, the Latino, Asian-American, Pacific Islander, faith leaders, people with disabilities, Um, And they're really trying to lift up the voices of those communities. And I think one of the things that you really said that I I just want to lift up and and make sure people recognize is how important it is that lifting up the voices of those communities has resulted in better conversations at the end of life, which has the potential to improve the whole um, experience around how one lives the end of their life and how they die. Um, To answer your question specifically around what do we say to people who may not agree with the full breadth of options, that's okay. We are, um, we're not taking a position on what option any person should choose for themselves. We're simply holding space that there are a range of possible options for people and that that range of options that people want should be available in a legally safe way. Um, And as long as we're protecting vulnerable populations, which is paramount to everything that we do, and it's not that option is not being forced on somebody else, which our data concludes that it's not, um, it should be that we can allow and respect different beliefs. And that's all that we as an organization are saying is allow people to die in a manner that's consistent with their own spiritual beliefs. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, And that's a part of the core of the work that I do. So let's get a little bit personal for a moment, if you're okay with that. We've been talking a lot about what the organization stands for and what the organization represents. But you as a person, an individual, is something that um, is something like medical aid and dying, something that you would want access to personally in your own life? Mm -hmm. Or let's say you had a child or your spouse become terminally ill and you're holding out all hope that things may change, but they've been given, you know, a very short amount of time by medical professionals to live. Would that be something that you have peacemaking decision about yourself? So I personally um, would want everybody to have access to the option because what we have seen with the data is that having the option available gives people greater um, peace of mind because it helps to ensure that they will not suffer. Um, So I absolutely myself would want access to the option. I don't know whether I would choose to use the option. I think, you know, I like so many other people as a healthy person, um, I, you know, desperately love life and I want to live. And like, it's hard for me to fathom that I could ever take a proactive step that would change that. That said, I have sat side by side with people that are in 
um, at the very end of their life who are suffering so much that I completely understand why someone would choose this option. So I do believe that the option is essential for people to have access to if they want it. And then ultimately, the decision on whether or not you choose to either get a prescription and then hold on to it, which about a third of people do, or ever even go through the process to get a prescription is completely personal. And it doesn't really matter what I would do. What matters is what each individual person would do. The other thing that I'll just add is we have seen that the authorization of medical aid in dying improves end-of-life care across the board. So it sends a signal to the medical community that patients should have a voice and a choice in the kind of end-of-life care that they receive. And... Um, it forces the medical teams for the first time to really sit around a table, the social workers, the doctors, the nurses, and have a conversation about what does it mean to respect the patient's values. And that in and of itself has a profound positive impact on end-of-life care. Even facilities who end up not adopting supportive policies around end-of-life care improve all other aspects, their hospice care, their palliative care, they give better training to doctors and nurses. So this as an option is transformative. So we both are very familiar with the end-of-life space, and there's this misconception that working in the death care space and the end-of-life space is heavy work, at which at times it honestly can be. Um, but what is your favorite part of being the leader, the face, really, of such a big organization and big structure, which really doesn't exist in our realm of death care? What, what is that like for you? What's your favorite part of it? For sure, it's interacting with um, our individual volunteers, supporters, donors, and in particular, our storytellers. Um, the terminally ill advocates, especially those who are at the end of their life, who come forward and have the courage to share their story are incredibly inspiring. Um, and one of the things every single time that I have a conversation with one of them, I'm always moved and I am moved by their embrace of living life and doing everything they possibly can to make a difference before they die. And the selflessness by which they do that, because most of them recognize that in their state, they're not going to get the option that they want or, or the change that they're seeking, regardless, whatever that change is. Um, but they're incredibly inspiring. And what it has done for for me is it allows me to put in perspective what a problem really is. And so I might have just had a disagreement with one of my kids or with my husband, a relatively minor, stupid thing fighting over, you know, the toothpaste was left out again, or gosh, why didn't you do the dishes? And, you know, and I will go from, you know, being really angry at my husband that once again, he did not do the dishes, which I really do wish he would do more regularly, to getting on the phone with one of our storytellers who's facing their death and watch how they live their life and how precious it is. And it stops me in my tracks and gets me to realize, like, I have a gift in that I don't, I mean, my time is limited too, but at least I believe I have more time than many of our storytellers do. And for me to waste that time arguing over dishes and toothpaste instead of making a difference in the world and, and having a profound impact 
isn't okay. And so being in this world, in this space, while it is hard to watch someone that you care about die, it's also incredibly empowering, inspiring, and holds you accountable for living your life at a higher level. Beautifully put. And I can definitely relate to just the perspective that working in this space gives everyday life. And mean like trivial things that we all get caught up in. So how do you manage the grief that you experience when those storytellers and those advocates pass away? Because, or I can definitely relate to losing those donors and those storytellers. How do you manage the grief that comes with that? Um. So it is really hard. Um, and in the moment when it first happens, I do have to stop and take a breath. And um, we do some organization wide things like share about them in our all staff meetings and, you know, do videos about them. So organizationally, we try to support each other. Um, but ultimately, for me, I feel like our storytellers and our advocates and our volunteers are all counting on me and the organization to continue our work. And so once I get over the immediate shock of losing somebody, I move on by doing everything that I can to honor their wishes. And their wishes are that nobody else suffers the way that they do, or that we get a law change that improves the way end-of-life care is delivered, or that we educate more underserved communities about the options that are available to them. And so I really throw myself into their work. And I often, um, we have this um, repository of their stories on our intranet. And I will go into the repository when I'm having a bad moment or a bad day, and I will pull up their story and I will talk to them. And they, you know, I will allow their spirit and their essence to carry me through difficult moments. Um, It's not uncommon for me right before I go out and um, deliver a presentation or a speech, if I'm really nervous or I'm testifying, I will actually pick a particular supporter or storyteller to have a conversation with beforehand about kind of what I want to accomplish and what I want to get out of it. And then when I go out there, I feel like I'm carrying on this very difficult and challenging work on their behalf. I love what you said about tapping into the essence of their spirit in their story, because to me, this work is extremely spiritual. If it weren't for the spiritual aspect, I don't think that I could do it intellectually alone. And our spirit is a checks and balance system for many of us. Do you have in your spirit any confliction or feelings of guilt around particularly the medical aid and dying part, like do any questions come up inside? Because I mean, medical aid and dying improperly known as assisted suicide, it's so controversial and people have so many opinions about it. And as many supporters as we have, we have just as many people saying this is wrong and we shouldn't be playing God essentially. So do you have any of those feelings? And if so, how do you manage those? Yeah, so I don't have any feelings of confliction around medical aid and dying. I feel like within the practice of medicine, um, we are constantly, quote unquote, playing God. Um, We give people medication to save their life all the time. You know, if you look at the progress that we've made within medicine, most of the ways that people are really suffering at the end of life have come because man has become so good at curing life 
it's chemotherapy treatments that are what ravages so many people's body to the point that they're suffering so much at the end of life. So for me, I don't have any conflictions about it. I feel like we use medicine to extend life and it's okay to use medicine in order to shorten life. And that ultimately each individual person needs to decide what's consistent with their own values and priorities. That's interesting that you say that because um, in my former position, I worked with a neonatologist who would, would, it would be his go-to saying, sometimes I have to be an angel and sometimes I have to be the angel, Mm -hmm. essentially meaning being the angel of death and telling people like, you know, this pregnancy doesn't have any viability or after the golden hour of birth, this child's life expectancy is not good. And you're causing more suffering by having them on this machines. And I would always ask him, like, how do you do it, Dr. Brand? How do you tell a a mom that just delivered a baby? She's, She's thinking she's going to have the rest of her life after giving labor with her child. And you now have to tell them that that's not a possibility or this baby is stillborn or wasn't born with life at all. And I'm he shared similar thoughts about medicine. So it's so interesting to hear you say those exact words. Um, the next question. So yourself, um, Dan Diaz, Dr. Bagari, and Sierra Futnitz. Am I saying that wrong? It's um, Dr. Banerjee and Sierra Fuentes. Thank you. Um, you guys recently made an appearance on the Dr. Phil show. Um, what shifts have you seen in the organization and response to the organization since that level of like huge publicity? Uh, that's a great question. So um, I don't know that I've seen. I, I, so we've we've gotten, you know, quite a bit of um, had had a number of high profile placements in the past. So we have been on like Oprah before. Um, so the Dr. Phil show was is tremendous. And we're definitely seeing greater awareness, more people coming to our website, Um, But I do feel like um, this is an issue that's out there a lot more than it used to. So I didn't see as much of a bump in this as we did as an example when Oprah first had us on. Mm -hmm. And I think that that partly shows just how far this movement has come. We are so regularly in the papers. We're so, you know, regularly in social media that this concept around talking about death and the end of life and even the concept concept of medical aid and dying is just not as out there as it once was. It's pretty much entered into the mainstream. What about the emphasis or have you found that more people are curious about the other options like the dementia tool or the palliative care resources? Have you seen an increase in interest in those areas maybe? We have um, definitely, especially as a result of COVID. So Mm -hmm. I would say what COVID did, um, and of course it's devastating. So it's hard to look at anything that Um, had that level of devastation and try to find a silver lining in it. So please don't hear what I'm saying to suggest that COVID wasn't devastating. It was devastating. But for the end of life movement, there were actually some positive outcomes to it. And one of those positive outcomes were that people saw firsthand that if you don't plan for and think about how you're going to die, it can end up really traumatic, not just for you, but for your loved ones. So we've seen a lot um, greater interest in um, understanding how to do advanced care planning and recognizing the limitations of advanced care planning. And therefore, you know, well, what do you do if it's dementia? And okay, 
that's not really, it doesn't like, it's not enough to fill out an advanced directive to handle that. And so we have a dementia tool that's on our website that we encourage people to fill out. We've seen a big uptick in that. We've seen lot, lots more underserved communities be interested in doing advanced care planning and leaders within um, the underserved movement. Like we now have a collaboration with the NAACP and with Nobel Women and with the National Hispanic Council on Aging. So other organizations recognizing the intertwining in how you live the final chapter of your life and how you die. Um and same with palliative care. I mean, one of the messages and one of the things that I think is really important is when you're talking about communities that have been mistreated by the medical community, it's really hard to start the conversation at death. Mm. But palliative care is an option for people at the onset of any serious diagnosis and a palliative care doctor walks alongside you as your champion, helping you to understand quality of life versus quantity of life and begin to really understand how you treat all of your symptoms, not just the disease. And so I think one of the ways that we can really improve end of life care, the final chapter of how one um, dies is to improve palliative care. And so we're seeing a lot greater awareness around palliative care, and we're going to do a lot of policy work to address inequities in palliative care and a lot more conversations um, within um, underserved communities to be sure there's an awareness of palliative care. And so all of those things, I think, came as a result of COVID and the issue of death being out there constantly in the media. Um, you know, so there were, you know, so that's, I would say, kind of the changes that we're seeing in recent days. The last change that we saw that happened as a result of COVID was um, a growth in telehealth as an option. Mm -hmm. And you saw decades worth of progress being made on telehealth. And telehealth cannot replace in person across the board. Like I, I'm not suggesting it is the solution to all of our problems. But when somebody's truly dying and they're at the end of life and our healthcare system is asking them to get up and to go to another doctor's appointment that really isn't necessary, where they could just get the medication they need in their own home, mm -hmm. it makes a big difference. And so now that there is greater awareness and familiarity and usage of telehealth, that can also improve the final chapter of one's life. If used appropriately and if in the underserved communities that don't have access to broadband, we have to address those um, those issues. That is the perfect uh, segue to our next question. Um, Kim, everyone that I've had the honor of speaking with within the organization in some way has credited or pointed back to you with pushing compassion and choices to become more inclusive and diverse in making end-of-life autonomy more accessible across the board, culturally, racially, socially. But I imagine that that's been a pretty big order to even write, let alone try to fulfill. What barriers have you had in overcoming the history of the organization and your vision or the organization's now vision for the future of Compassion and Choices? Yeah. Um, so um, I this has been an issue that has been important to me since the moment I arrived, but I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that there were people at Compassion and Choices who kind of took this issue on even before I was there. Brandy Alexander, who leads our um, community engagement work, being one of them. Um, but it is absolutely been central to everything that I have done. And it has been a top priority. And, um, you know, and I will continue to advocate for it because I truly 
Um, and I said this at the outset, like our mission is about empowering everybody to chart their end of life journey. And if the people, if our supporters do not represent the world that we live in, we're not fulfilling our full mission. Um, it hasn't been easy. If you look at the organization, um, we did start a re- with a, um, a lens around medical aid and dying. And while the organization's mission was always to improve care, expand options, and empower everyone to chart their own end of life journey, there is no question that the founders um, and the initial emphasis of the organization was more focused around medical aid and dying. And so it was around the expand autonomy acts piece of it, which we know when you expand medical aid and dying, it also improves care. Um, so they were intertwined. And we also did a lot of other thing, things on the improved care side. We started an end of life consultation program. So the organization has done work straight across. Um, however, um, we were still primarily and largely a white organization because we emphasized medical aid and dying at the expense of everything else. Um, and it took some time to be able to untangle that. First of all, we had to have a vision that everybody could see themselves in. Um, and we had to have a real commitment to that vision, which meant putting resources behind that vision. And that requires you to put a vision out and to raise money around that vision and to move your existing supporters around so that they see the full breadth of the vision um, and to raise money around new aspects of the vision and to do all of that, you have to move a staff, you have to move a board, you have to move the greater kind of community that's out there. Um, and you know that's not easy. Um, but fortunately, um, we have been successful because we have um, an incredible group of donors and supporters who, at the end of the day, really understood that our mission was not just about medical aid and dying. They understood that our mission was broader. And when you when I raised the concern with them, they got on board with it. So we were really fortunate. You know, it still has been slower than I wanted. You know, I wanted to be able to like announce, you know, we were going to do all this programming and money would fly in and, you know, the world would be changed and it's been slow, but, um, but it's also not been slow. Like if you step back and you look at, you know, the progress in the movement, when I started as CEO, it was an all white C-suite and all white board. There were, you know, mostly white staff. And, you know, now you look at it and it's a fairly diverse board and a very diverse C-suite and a pretty diverse staff. Um, But that's only a portion of what we're trying to accomplish. It's about diversity, equity, and inclusion and creating a sense of belonging. Um, And so we're on the journey and it's on an important journey. Um, And part of being on that journey is having programming that reflects the needs and the values and the priorities of all the organizations. And that's the work we're doing around community engagement. That's the work that we're doing around policy change. And the reality is our progress around medical aid and dying would not continue if we didn't do the other things. Because we were out of white, mostly white states that we could authorize. And so even if someone didn't support the broader vision of this movement should be about everybody, if they only cared about medical aid and dying, they still needed to get on board with the idea that we needed a more diverse and inclusive movement because we couldn't continue to advance medical aid and dying without broadening the supporter base and the movement that we were talking to. Definitely agree with all of that. And I have to agree with you 100% about Brandy, who I absolutely love. Um, I've had the honor of witnessing her leadership as serving 
as a member of the African-American Leadership Council and recently had the opportunity to present with her um, at our last board meeting. And she's absolutely phenomenal in taking community engagement to another level, in my opinion. So you mentioned something that's very vital to our organization, which is funds and support. For our listeners and our viewers on YouTube, how can they support Compassion and Choices what we're doing in medical aid and dying, what we're doing in dementia, palliative care, and all of the work that we're doing, how can they support us? That's a great question. So um, first of all, go to our website at compassionandchoices.org. And there's um, a, a button there of different ways that you can get involved. And every way matters. And every, you know, every action, every dollar amount makes a difference. So people could choose to volunteer their time. Um, and we have volunteers in states. We have volunteers at the national level. We have volunteers as a part of our community engagement program, as a part of our advocacy work. Like there's lots of ways that you can get involved depending on your skill set and your interest in the amount of time. Getting involved could be as simple as just doing an online action. So it's like a one-time online action. It doesn't have to be a regular ongoing thing, although we do need regular ongoing volunteers as well. You can donate and every dollar makes a difference. And I think a lot of times um, people don't realize that when you give just a small amount and you're inspired to do that, whether it's $10, $15, $25, $100, like that all adds up. And so if we get hundreds of thousands of people to give us $25, that is just as impressive as one person, you know, giving us $5 million. So don't minimize your contribution because it really does make a difference. Um, you can tell your story. And we need stories that are both positive about why, um, how, um, why it's important that you plan for the end, especially from historically under or marginalized communities or from communities of color, because one of the things that we've learned through our community engagement work is that if you focus only on what goes wrong, that um, underserved communities are not necessarily inspired to then want to improve the end because it just seems like it's inevitable. And so we focused a lot in the early years on telling the story of what goes wrong with death in order to pass legislation around medical aid and dying. But that's not inspiring for an African-American or a Latino, you know, or a person with disability who already are receiving, you know, inadequate care. They want to know, why should I bother? And so we also need those positive stories where someone planned for the end and it had a positive outcome and made a difference. So you can share your story. Um Really, there's a ton of ways that you can get involved with us and every single action matters. But I would start by going to CompassionAndChoices.org. Kim, thank you so much for taking the time to answer these questions and for the phenomenal work that you're doing as the leader in the face of Compassion and Choices. Was there anything else that you wanted to share with listeners or viewers? Um, I just want to thank them for listening. And clearly, anybody who is going to a podcast related to death and grieving is a special person because, you know, it's not an easy topic. And people who are inspired to learn more about this and to, to get engaged, I think, are really special people. So thank you for being who you are, for choosing this as the podcast that you listen to. And I hope that I've said something today that you've connected with that makes you want to get involved with Compassion and Choices. I'm confident that you have. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you all for listening and watching. Thanks, Joelle. I'll, see, I'll you. see you. Thank you so much for listening to the Death and Grief Talk podcast. To learn more, visit www 
thatthegravewoman.com. Live life. Later. Love hard. We'll talk to you next time.